On Thursday, May 14, 1998, at 10.50pm, Frank Sinatra, the epitome of show business success and glamour, took his last breath at the age of 82 from a heart attack. Throughout his long life, Mr Sinatra's warm baritone and exceptional vocal range left behind a rich and vast legacy of recordings and feature films, making him one of the most successful entertainers of all time. We're here for Rockabye's and uh, I got some special guests, some co-hosts, great co-hosts, actually probably be recurring co-hosts, I think. Hopefully. Hopefully, yes. Hopefully, Hopefully, Hopefully. you invite us back. Oh, you're always, we're, you're, we're you're family. still the beginning of this. You're family, you're family, okay. Rockabye's right. family. So, uh, won't you introduce yourself? What's your name? My name's Christian Bayapora. I've Christian. known Mel for, God, about three years now. Mm-hmm. I've been with my fiance, mm-hmm. Megan, who's sitting to my left. Hello. My girl. Yeah. yeah. So we have fun. And you know what? Megan is like my fellow music history geek. We can't get enough of it. Yeah. Like we talk, we'll walk, do our walks and talk about the Eagles, drama, drama. Mm-hmm. She'll tell me what to watch. So that's how I watch the Eagles because of her. Mm-hmm. And then we'll talk about other stuff and other, you know, music history And the buff. nonsense, too. Yes, the nonsense <laughs> the and the music that. history buffery. <laughs> So today, this is a special day. This is going to be a special show. Yeah, because this is your favorite. It's old blue eyes. Old blue eyes, yes. Old blue eyes. I mean, this is like, this is going to be a bonanza. Because even when I saw the notes that I printed out for you, like that's probably the most pages ever. Well, I saw it on my phone today. I was like, wow. (laughs) I go, this is like, not that I'm a music history buff Mm -hmm. whatsoever. I think I've made that perfectly clear, but... uh, (laughs) Uh, my fiance to my left. I mean, she's she's, she's like, amazing about stuff oh, like that. I mean, a little side note on this is uh, every time I sing a song, I sing it wrong, and then she just looks at me like I'm the craziest person in the world. She's like, "What did you just say?" <laughs> well, everybody does that. You know how you sing in a song, and you go but like that. You don't know the words to it, so you be like, "Yeah, da 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 blah blah blah." Oh, I kind of go through it. So many different remixes to every single song. Yes, I think I know. And they're sounds. Yes. You know how you do sounds, kind of oh. like skate through it, right? So this guy, I always start with like a beginning quote, and um, we know it's about old blue eyes, Frank Sinatra. So I'm going to see if you know who this person This person is a poet that said this, and I thought this is perfect for Frank. And I changed it up. Okay. What I told you at work, All right. that's at the end. So okay. this is actually not that. But this person said, and this is enc- I do a quote to encompass their life, you know what I mean, by anybody. Like uh, Left Eye, Lisa Lopez, I talked uh, about Emil Zola, quote about living out loud. And then this one, this one I thought about uh, Mr. Frank Sinatra. And it says, this person said, actually I have two of his quotes, behind every beautiful thing there's some kind of pain. And I thought behind his beautiful voice there's a lot of pain. 
And then he said, a man is a success if he gets up in the morning and gets to bed at night, and in between he does what he wants to do. And that was totally, to me, I think about Frank Sinatra. I mean, that, that I think that nails him on the head. And I think as mm-hmm. we get into this more, right. from the right. notes that you sent me and that we read, I was, I was like, this guy, I mean, and we'll get into it a little bit. Right. My favorite song was My Way. Yes. So yeah. your favorite song was My Way. It was. Written by? Paul Anka. Yes. And then there's a French guy that you and Megan told me about who did the, the actual music mm-hmm. surrounding the song. You took Frenchy. You want to throw some of your little Frenchy oh, poo I, in there? I, I, oh, come on, man. I am not going to butcher that for anyone who wasn't. <laughs> yeah, you you want to give it a no, whirl? No. You want to give it a whirl? <laughs> yeah. um, and the person that said those two lines and actually was at Frank's funeral was Bob Dylan. No kidding. Those lines, and it, it wasn't about Frank, but that I thought those quotes that he had said pretty much encompassed Frank Sinatra. Yeah, I think that nails it right on the head. Yeah, so my way. And he definitely lived his way. Oh, absolutely. And did what he wants to do in between <laughs> morning and night when he died, to me. You know what I mean? The morning to when he died, yep. that's how he lived. I think one of my favorite quotes by Frank Sinatra, and funny enough, I saw it in Vegas on the menu, it was, uh, I feel sorry for the guy who's sober because the best he feels is in the morning. Uh, nice. And I'm paraphrasing there a little bit. No, that's uh, about right. You know what? I saw something like that when I was doing some Frank Sinatra quotes. You're right. It, that's a good one. Yeah. I mean, look. I Which mean, hotel? I, do you remember? Was it Caesars? Come on. We're in Vegas. Oh, okay. Come you on. can't remember nothing. Hey, no, but what happens no. in Vegas stays in but Vegas. But I, I thought it was great just because I was in the moment. I was like, he's. you know what? He's right. You know, I yeah. feel a little bit better about where my situation is at 3 in the morning at this How point. did you get, um, did your dad or your mom listen to Frank Sinatra? How did you get, how did you know about Frank Funny Sinatra? Funny enough, it was like when I was a little kid, we had a family friend, and he was younger, and he was, I mean, I say younger compared to my parents. He was about 10 years younger than my parents. Mm-hmm. He was, when I first met him, I was about 6 or 7, mm-hmm. um, and he was in his 20s, and he would always play Frank Sinatra. I mean, he'd play a lot of different stuff. So you'd always have a CD book. Back in the day, when there were CDs, it wasn't Spotify and there wasn't mm-hmm. all these streaming services. He would have this huge CD book in his car. Mm-hmm. And there would be certain times where it was like, you know, like, hey, let's play some Green Day. Let's play some like some of the stuff that I grew up with. And he would just get sick of it. He was like, no, we're putting Frank on. And he put Frank on, and he would blast it. It wouldn't just be like at a normal mm-hmm. volume. It would be windows down, Turn it all the way up to eleven, nice. and go go to town. And I just remember being a kid, especially around seven or eight, mm-hmm. being absolutely embarrassed because to me, you didn't know the history about Frank Sinatra. You right. didn't know who Frank was. Right. It was just old music. Right. And it was like, what are we listening to classical music? It's not classical <laughs> yeah, music. But exactly. as a kid, you're like, what is this? Right. Um, but you know, as as I continued to learn about Frank and listen to more Frank, it was more of an appreciation and. You know, we would go to this family friend's house, and he would have, he'd have that iconic picture from Ocean's Eleven, where they're all mm. sitting down, and they're planning the mm-hmm. heist, and they're all sitting, it's, you know, Tim, Joey Bishop, Dean Martin, all right. of them, Sammy Davis Jr., yep. sitting around that pool table, planning the heist, and uh, that, that I think, really stuck in my mm. mind, it's like, it was just the, the epitome of just being cool. It was yes, just like, he was the epitome of cool. And I think me and you have talked about this, mm-hmm. like, this guy was just, he had the swagger before swagger was even a thing. Like right. He, just, he created he, swagger. He did. He really did. And, you know, one he was of, the king of cool. One of the documentaries that we watched that you recommended, um, you know, 
they, they pinned him as the first rock star, which I thought yes. was just like... That's the, very true. Even though awesome. he hated rock and roll. Oh, he, he hated, hated rock and, and roll. He hated it. Yes, he did. He hated Elvis. He hated all these he guys. Did. He, he did. He did hate garbage, Elvis. Garbage, and it was just like, that's not music. Yeah. That's yelling at They don't know what they're talking about. So... That's awesome. I love it that you so, were introduced that at that early at six years old. Yeah. So, I mean, it was uh, it was definitely just kind of like, you know, you grew to love it, but then you grew to appreciate it. And for me, mm-hmm. it was like, then you kind of dug into it. And I think any artist that's out See, there. See, that's why I'm glad you came on to co-host this, because Megan is the one that told me, because you, you know how close she and I are. We walk mm-hmm. around all the time, just for our audience. We everything and so she said that when you guys you're making dinner oh yeah you play Frank Sinatra Mm -hmm. I yell at Alexa I can't believe I'm saying this but yeah I yell at Alexa hey Alexa Frank Sinatra Radio Frank Sinatra and every time I cook, it doesn't matter what it is. So Alexa's listening, and Jeff Bezos is like, okay. <laughs> Jeff Bezos is like, know, what's going he, on here? I need to go buy into some Frank Sinatra. Uh-huh. But anyway, so we're just going to get it started. We're going to get Let's it started. It. So Francis Albert Sinatra was born in Hoboken, New Jersey on Sunday. And by the way, just speak up. Curse words are, or courage, whatever you want. Uh, but Francis Albert Sinatra was born in Hoboken, Hoboken, New Jersey, on Sunday, December 12, 1915, in a tenement apartment to Antonino. You're, you're Italian. How do you say that? Antonino? Antonino. You don't even say it the right way. You don't no, even have you don't even have your hands no. like this. No, no, you, know, you see it. My dad, see? my dad is the king of the hand gestures. He's the king of yeah, oh, y'all started this right here. That's a whole nother story. That's a whole nother. Isn't, it, isn't it Antonio? Well, Antonino. Antonino. Antonino, Marty. It's Antonio. <laughs> it is Antonio, but the Italian. All right, all right. Whatever. Antonino, Marty Sinatra, and Natalina, Dolly Sinatra, but everyone called them Marty and Dolly. And I want to say that I found this out. He shares Marty, oh, no, I'm sorry, Frank shares the same birthday, and this is so weird, the same birthday day of December 12th with Sammy Davis Jr.'s dad. No kidding. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I came about that, but Sammy Sr. was born December 15, 1900, and Frank Sinatra was 1915, so he's 15 years older than Frank. And that's so weird that him and Sammy Davis became such fast friends, and they, their dad, his dad shares a birthday with his best friend. Yeah. He was a breech baby. And was an agonizing. It was an agonizing delivery for Dolly. I mean, Dolly wouldn't be able to have any more kids after Frank. Um, but he weighed 13 and a half pounds, and he had to be delivered with the aid of forceps, which caused the severe scarring um, to his left cheek, his neck, and his ear. And he gained a like a punctured, perforated eardrum, which remained with him for the rest of his life. So one of his wow. ears didn't work as well as the other one. Kind of like a like you know Beethoven went deaf. You know? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It's just, you know, just you kind of go with it. You don't think about it and you just go with it. But that tells you, you don't let anything stop you, right? Mm-hmm. So he had a childhood operation on his mastoid bone. And I looked that up. That's the bone behind his ear, which left major scarring on his neck. So because of his birth injuries, his baptism was delayed until April 1916. And Dolly selected an Irish... Uh, godfather for her son, even though they were Italian. His name was Francis Frank Garrick, and he was the circulation manager for the Jersey Observer. Now, you would know, I don't know if you're Catholic, 
You're supposed to be named after your dad in the baptism, but there was a kerfuffle, a little little mistake that was made. Dolly was too sick still to attend, so Frank's dad, Marty, took him to to the uh, baptism, and forgetting uh, the priest uh, saw Frank Garrick and said, what's your name? And he told him, Francis Garrick, right? The priest then started the baptism, forgot about Marty's name, and accidentally named Francis instead of Martin as the name. You know, I'd be, I'd be lying if I told you I knew about that uh, the baptism would be named after that. I did not know that. Sometimes, no, that's what it said in there. I didn't know it either. Cause, uh, but, you know. My dad is going to kick my butt when he sees that. <laughs> well, no, well, you know what? His dad didn't mind. He was very... Um, easy going his dad so he didn't mind and neither did Dolly even though I'm surprised because you know she was a hellraiser but she thought it was a good omen that the, it was an accident that happened so my question to you is you and Megan have kids mm-hmm. and it's supposed to be named after Christian you know Christian Jr. and then the priest says Wesley yeah your name's Wesley and then during the baptism going and then the Holy Ghost and then it's Wesley oh what my would god you Wes would just die laughing <laughs> Dude, I mean when Wes hears this he's gonna be I can already hear him laughing like, you, that's right would you get mad would you what would you do would you no, get mad I wouldn't get mad no I mean so look, your kid's I'm, name I'm, would be Wesley Wesley Biafora no I mean look I'm not I'm not traditional by any means whatsoever I mean I think but it's it, an accident. You I, guys were supposed to be talking about it, and this would be Christian Jr., and then he comes out of the church with Wesley. I mean, but look, I mean, look, I mean, I know the Catholics, and I've got, you know, I've got Catholic relatives who are yeah. very strict and very, very hard yeah. and very, very traditional. Right. And uh, we were definitely not raised that way, at least in our immediate family. So for me, it wouldn't be a big deal. And I think, you know, just seeing this whole situation going on with Frank, I think that right. kind of really... Should, like showed his true colors as he grew up because he was not traditional. He was not kind no. of falling into like what mm, history no. repeated himself. So no. I think this is probably the beginning. Of but how would you he, feel bad as a dad of your son instead of coming out of the church named Christian, he comes out of church named Wesley? I mean, before I mean, times have changed so much now. But but uh, what would you do? Would you say you know what? Actually, uh, Father so and so is supposed to be Christian, like that. Marty was, back Marty was so well. Marty was a docile type of guy so he was like yeah hey, I didn't want to say anything and so the kid came out of the church with the name of the um yeah the Francis God. it I was mean, happening it's great I but mean like I guess I all right if I'm gonna be put in my situation if you put in that 1915, situation 1915 but even now be, even now nah, you come in, you don't care so you come out and name it Wesley you look at Do- like Dolly and Marty like hey maybe it's a hey, good I idea got a, I got a cousin named Wes and you know he's a good guy you know so see, I'm all good with got, it see that and it might be something good a good omen but anyway so Frank was spoiled by his domineering mom and his mild-mannered diet, as we know. Um, but his mom was very domineering. And his dad was a firefighter, and Dolly was a midwife. But he had his own bedroom. Unlike a lot of people who lived in town, Frank had his own bedroom, which was very rare back then. He had a fancy wardrobe, lots of toys and bicycles. He even had his own charge account at the local department store. Um, But Dolly became influential in the town and and through the local Democratic Party. She was really a heavy Democrat, and due to her experience as a midwife, she also performed illegal abortions 
between $25 to $50 um, for girls who kind of found themselves in trouble, which was good back then because you can get, like, disowned. Well, I mean, I, I think that shows kind you of know. like, you know, as we'll get into it a little bit more, yeah. I think, from, you know, Frank's later life, I mean, especially with Quincy Jones and the people that he worked with later yes. on, like, yes. he really wasn't with the stigma of right. what was the time period he was growing up in. Right. You know, he was ahead of his time. was definitely looked down upon. And, oh, my God, especially and, for a young girl who's, uh, who, so you know. I think, I think to his character, as much as, you know, his ties and stuff like mm-hmm. he, he had he was very forward thinking and I think he didn't yeah. really give a shit that's true what uh, that's true what the general consensus was he was like a honey badger he was a honey badger oh my there god go. honey badgers didn't give a shit honey, honey badgers don't give a shit they don't give a shit um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Dolly was arrested a few times she was in the know I want to say like she like I thought I know people around you know where I work at but she knew Everybody in town, so much so that she would call up and go, "Look, I need you to give Christian a job." That's what she called up the mayor, or whatever. She was that piped in. But she was arrested a few times for the doing abortions, and she never went to jail, possibly because of her political connections in town. She also ran a saloon during Prohibition. She was a hustler, straight up hustler, tough, tough woman. So Frank graduated from David E. Rue Jr. High in 1931 and entered high school where he only lasted 47 days. He was expelled for general rowdiness, and that put an end to his formal education at 16 years old. And he decided, I want to be a singer. So his mother wasn't happy, and she called him a bum and threw her shoe at him. She wanted him to be something respectable, like an engineer, doctor. She was so mad at him. Um, But he was very inspired by Bing Crosby. That was one of his, like, he loved Bing Crosby, and he was inspired by his movies. And he decided he wanted to be a singer, just like Bing. So... Bing Crosby Jr. was a big musical influence on Frank Sinatra. He was an American singer and actor. Bing was a top seller in record sales, radio ratings, and motion picture grosses from 1931 to 1954. He was, by his own definition, a Fraser, whose clear vocal style placed equal emphasis on both the lyrics and the music. Bing's innovative singing style heavily influenced many male singers who followed him, such as Frank and Dean Martin. Bing is one of six actors to win two Academy Awards for playing the same character. In 1963, Bing received the first Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. He is one of only 33 people to have three stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in the categories of motion pictures, radio, and audio recording. However, for all of his accolades, Bing Crosby is best known for his version of the song White Christmas, which remains the best-selling single of all time. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, Bing's recording of White Christmas has sold over 100 million copies around the world. Bing died of a heart attack in October 1977. So he started wearing the little decorated little navy hat that I know you guys have seen the pictures mm-hmm. of him. Mm-hmm. He had worn on the little side. And he was always the stylish guy, as you can know. And he started singing in public around the age of 17. He sung anywhere and everywhere, such as like school dances. And at one point, he offered to take the orchestra, his little orchestra, to the Lady of Grace Church for their Friday night dances. But the Irish Catholics said no because of Dolly's illegal abortion business. Um, They would have nothing to do with him. So Dolly felt so bad about the church's refusal 
that she bought uh, Frank a PA system, a $65 PA system, which was very rare back then, um, which contained a mic, speakers, and a case, so we, he would have an easier time uh he would have an easier time booking musicians. So when Frank would let a band use his PA, the only stipulation is, you got to let me sing with your band. That's what he would say to them. And the leader of the band would usually say, okay, you can sing with us. And Dolly also gave her son money to buy orchestrations. like to. So she was very instrumental in his career, actually, which helped him as much as the PA system. And he wasn't the best singer in the town. See, these kids need to know that you don't have to be the best coming out the gate. He's going to have those pretty blue eyes. Exactly. You know, he's just and ambition. Those, and those ambition, eyes. you know. And the confidence. Confidence. That, you know what? That's what I put right here. Ambition and confidence. That's true. Uh, by 1935, at the age of 20, Frank was still living at home and without a steady job. And Dolly used her connections and secured him a two-month gig for $40 a week at the Union Club in Hoboken. After that, Frank started singing one-nighters at the Italian social clubs in Hoboken. Because he had a car, he also drove a local trio around called the Three Flashes to Inglewood Cliffs and watched them perform with some orchestra at the Rustic Cabin. After being turned down at first, he joined their group after Dolly got involved, and the Three Flashes became Hoboken Four. So I just, I just want to stop there. Yeah. I feel like Dolly yeah. was the original gangster of that Sinatra family. Oh, my God. Dolly uh, she was, was like, everything. I mean, like, I feel like she, you know, she she, she was a hard door. ass. She's like, hey, I'm gonna put my kid in the band, or or else. Oh, she was totally like that, totally. Like, yeah. like if he got turned down, he'd be like, mom, and mom just come in and just bulldoze you. So she would come to you and go, Christian, why are you not letting my son in the band? You better. And she cursed like a a trucker. Like she said, she had no problems calling people a whore, motherfucker. That's like amazing. she because back cursed in the day, like you oh. just had this image and like that these. Yeah, she wasn't dainty. Mm-mm. She wasn't dainty. Well, he learned a lot of that from her. Yeah. Take no was not an option. He would just That's true. push through. You know what? That's a good point. I just thought of that. Wow. That's true. That's probably where he picked that up a lot of it. Because it definitely wasn't from his dad. No, his dad was very easy going. No, no, because you know he knew. He was, you know, it's like, hey, either shut your mouth or, or else. You know? Oh yes, we he, as you know, see, you yeah, he hey, does like fire us. Put those fires out. I'll or, fuck you, you know. up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how Dolly was. She right. She was the original gangster, and she was the. You're right. She was so pivotal to his career. Pivotal. So. The Three Flashes became the Hoboken Four, and when they won their first amateur talent contest on September 8, 1935 in in New York, there's this guy named Major Bose who was over this talent show, and he signed them to a contract, which was $50 a week plus meals, and they went on tour. What I couldn't find out if it was $50 among the four of them or $50 a piece, because back then it might have been $50 for the four of them. I mean, but you kind of see like he originally got his first gig was 40 bucks a week. You got to assume like, you know. That's true. Then it had to be $50. But he did, he did go That's down. That's true. But he did go down. But you never know. That's true. That's probably true. So traveling by bus and by train, uh, the Hoboken Four joined 16 other acts including an organist, bell ringers, jug players, yodelers, and tap dancers, which must have been a riot on that fucking bus if they were traveling, like all that nonsense going on. 
So as the cute little lead singer of the Hoboken Four, Frank stood out as the best in the group, and he soon became the star of the tour, who got a lot of the attention from Major Bowes and the other executives running the tour. And every time he growled in a song or crooned, the girls besieged him backstage, which made the other guys extremely jealous, and that's when his bandmates started beating him up. So he started getting beat up because he was a little guy. And they abused him so much, um, especially when he went off with a woman after the show. They would get jealous and because they had to go to their rooms alone, not getting none. So after all, he was a skinny little guy, and he couldn't fight back. So finally, that same year, within a few months, he quit. He couldn't take the beatings any longer. And he left the tour in Ohio and returned to Hoboken. So he continued singing at every Italian wedding, political rally, social club and local radio stations, and he started dating Nancy Barbado. But here's, here's, oh, God, here we go. So he was dating Nancy, right? And then he was dating this girl named Tony, right? So one night after the show, Tony found out about Nancy, came to the shows at the Rustic Cabin, or maybe it was maybe not the Rustic Cabin. I can't remember. There was a confrontation between Tony and Nancy, Tony felt so angry and embarrassed that she swore out a warrant for his arrest on a morals charge. So she gave the dates that they had sex, and she said, I'm pregnant. She said she was pregnant. And he was arrested. His first arrest was on that. So all those that, that when you see the uh, mugshot. mugshot, that was, he was arrested on November 27th, 1938, and held in the county jail for 16 hours. Dolly was furious at Tony, and she called up Tony begging her to drop the charges. And then Dolly was so fucking pissed off, she called the police and said, you know what? Arrest that cow for disorderly conduct, because this is what she did. So they went and arrested Tony, okay? (laughs) And then Tony got mad. She got out that she was given a suspended sentence on December 21st. She got out, and she took out another swore second warrant on Frank. So it was like a revised one on that first one. And he was arrested again, this time for adultery. Um, but all the charges were dropped. I know, crazy, right? Wow. It was dropped within a month. This is like crazy from 19, late 1938, and the charges were dropped in 1939. Isn't that crazy? You could still get arrested for that now? I know. Woo, there'd be a lot, a lot of people, people in that there. jail. <laughs> for adultery, too. But he wasn't even married. I know, that's what's he so weird. He wasn't even married. So during this time, Frank found unemployment, uh, not unemployment, but employment, that's the margarita speaking, <laughs> as a singer-waiter, <laughs> and I put singer-water, by the way, on here, <laughs> at the Rustic Cabin for $15 a week. And the Rustic Cabin was connected to a radio station in New York City, and Frank began performing live with a group on the dance parade show. And from the minute... He started at the Rustic Cabin. He knew that he was destined for success, and he told his friend Fran and her brother that he was going to be so big that no one would ever touch him. And they went, yeah, sure you are. Mm-hmm. So after his charges were dismissed in January, Darley started pushing Frank to marry Nancy as soon as possible. Because she's like, you know, despite the, there was a lot of newspaper publicity about his arrest, and Nancy was uh, very much, even though despite that, she was very much in love with him and wanted to marry Frank as much as Dolly now wanted her to. So Frank told Nancy, I'm going to the top, and I don't want anyone dragging on my neck. 
So Nancy promised never to get in his way, and they married on February 4th. And she 4th. didn't, and she really didn't. It was all the stuff that he, I mean, like the guy Wait till you get to that part. Uh, I know, I know. See, you got to be careful what you promise. <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful what you promise, and we're about to talk about that in two seconds, because um, after a four-day honeymoon, when they got married in February, that was spent mostly driving to and from North Carolina, Frank and Nancy moved into a three-room Jersey City apartment, which they rented for like $42 a month. We talked about rental prices. That's really cheap. Um, but Nancy was happy to be Mrs. Frank Sinatra. She was. She cooked his favorite meals, which was spaghetti and lemon pie. Close, because you love key lime pie. I do love key lime pie. <laughs> do you love spaghetti? I do love spaghetti. We eat a lot of pasta. A lot of pasta. There you go. A lot of pasta. She tolerated the odd hours that he kept as he raced from one radio station to the next, begging to sing for free. She saw little of him during the week. She went to work early in the morning, came home around dinner time, and that's when Frank was getting ready to go to the rustic cabin where he stayed until early morning. Uh, she encouraged him, and she tried to get along with his mom, which she, they, they, she tried hard because Dolly was a pill. She was a bit of a pill. And she didn't like Dolly. She didn't like the hold that Donnie, Dolly, had, Donnie, Dolly had over Frank. And Dolly insisted that he visit her every week, and he did sometimes, most of the time alone. So, you know, you're about to get married to Christian. Just be careful what you put there because it's coming. It's going to test her when she said, I won't ever get in your way. We'll see about that. Mm. So the band leader and trumpeter, Harry James, heard Frank on the Dance Parade show, and the next night um, he went to the rustic cabin, and in June 1939, he saw Frank in person. He uh, approached... Wait a minute, where am I? Okay, in June 1939, James, whose band was only four months old, offered Frank a two-year contract as a featured male vocalist for $75 a week. Frank immediately accepted. Excited, he went on tour with them. However, by the time the bus had reached Denver, everyone's spirits had diminished, and the place they were supposed to sing at burned, at, burned to the ground. So Harry's agent at MCA got him into Victor Hugo's in Beverly Hills, and the owner complained that they played too loud and didn't pay them. Plus, he said that Frank didn't sound that good. Hmm. Victor Hugo's, isn't that still around? Is that where they have no, the think, Oscar parties? I don't know. I think you're thinking of Hugo's. Maybe that's Hugo's? it. Victor Hugo's. No. Uh, that's, that, that's that. that what's, uh, the name of the, what's the name of that place that's um, when they have the Oscar party? Trader Vic's. Well, I'm thinking about Trader Vic's. Maybe Are it turned you? into that. Yeah, isn't Trader Vic's over there by the Beverly Hills Hotel? I know. I feel like Victor Hugo's. Maybe it turned into Hugo's. Well, Hugo's is that down anyway. the street. Yeah, yeah. From Santa Monica, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, yeah. yeah anyway, uh, yeah. Maybe not. Maybe not. Megan's looking it up. Okay. So the whole band struggle. So. No, it's not around anymore, huh? Well, twenties. Uh, it was gone. It was really gone? In the 20s? By the 20s? No, it was, oh, it was, wait. This was 1939, 1940. It was around in the 20s, but. When did it go out of business? Permit. Yeah, there you go. You Sass look it up. So the whole band struggled financially, and Frank would invite everybody up to his place, and um, they would cook spaghetti for everyone, she would. And she was pregnant by this time and was traveling with Frank because she quit her job. And um, this is when he begins singing the song All or Nothing at All, which is the name of that documentary that he did for HBO or that his family. And go I think, for it. I think it's funny with Frank. It's just yeah. like... I think you lose it a lot in music today, and there's some there's some artists 
that today they, they, they actually sing what they see or they sing what they feel or they sing what they know. Mm. And I think Frank was really the originator, in my opinion. I mean, right, right. He just really just, his life experiences he put on. I mean, think about it. Like, mm. you start with with this song and it's basically it's all or nothing nothing at all and you basically just you're going for it yeah early in his career and then by the time he gets to my way it was just like a summary of like exactly what i've gotten to so i know really, he really writes and he really sings too he he had a he had a um a quote for that too it's really this it's weird because i didn't even put that in the outline it's funny that like in your outline i have the end quote and he said something similar which which is going to be interesting to get to Look at you. You do know Frank. I Frank, just, you I'm understand just you know Frank. And all You're channeling is, him from the grave. All this is is that Basil Hayden. That's that Basil Hayden. Whiskey. Hey. hey. Hey, free ad read over here. Yeah, yeah. that's right. For Basil. We have hey. to do, we just have to do a hashtag when, when we put it on the Instagram hey. for Rockabies. Hey, you know what? Just channel Frank. <laughs> Boom. I know Frank. He's oh, all in right here. There. He's all in there. And so they were so bad, the Harry James band, that... One time they were playing somewhere, and the manager rushed to the stage and waved his hands and said, stop, no more, enough. Even this is, Frank was even singing. They were thrown out, this is according to Frank, right in the middle of the song because Harry's trumpet playing was too loud and Frank's singing was lousy. So he didn't know about <clears throat> phrasing. I mean, just, you know, he was nervous because he was a kid. He yeah. was young. So while in Chicago for a Christmas benefit, uh, popular band leader Tommy Dorsey slipped Frank a note telling him to meet me at Tommy's suite, meet him at his suite. Frank hurried to the hotel and waited, you know, hours for Tommy to see him. Thomas Francis Dorsey Jr. was an American jazz trombonist, composer, conductor, and popular band leader of the big band era. He was known as the sentimental gentleman of swing because of his smooth-toned trombone playing. After Dorsey broke with his older brother in the mid-1930s, he led an extremely popular and highly successful band from the late 1930s into the 1950s. In 1940, Dorsey hired a singer Frank Sinatra from band leader Harry James. Frank Sinatra made 80 recordings from 1940 to 1942 with the Dorsey Band. Frank Sinatra achieved his first great success as a vocalist in the Dorsey Band and claimed he learned breath control from watching Dorsey play trombone. On November 26, 1956, Tommy died from choking in his sleep a week after his 51st birthday in his home. And when he finally saw him, he sang one of Dorsey's biggest hits at the time, and Frank was convinced that with Tommy Dorsey he would become a star. He, he, he was so ambitious. So... It was Tommy offered him $125 a week, which was a big deal back then, and he provided he could get out of his contract with Harry, which he did. And Frank accepted on the spot for a few reasons. One, he would be backed by a real orchestra. Two, he would never have to worry about bookings or getting thrown out of, you know, any restaurant or place. And three, he knew that the critics would have to write about him and his recordings and radio shows. He's very ambitious. And also he would get the opportunity to perform in the best ballrooms and theaters around the country, which is why he went for it. And within a few days, he left Harry and started rehearsing with the Dorsey Band and still convinced that he was going to be a star, which he was right, we all know. He became a star within a few months with Tommy Dorsey. Um, and he recorded his first song called I'll Never Smile Again. And that song launched him and became number one in the hit parade for weeks. 
And after that, Tommy put Frank's name above everyone else, above Connie Haynes, the female singer in the band, and other musicians, including the late, great, brilliant, and crazy Buddy Rich, who hated Frank because of it. <laughs> really? I didn't know that. Yeah, Buddy Rich, yeah. Not like Frank, huh? Oh, they, oh. I don't think Buddy Rich liked anybody. Well, <laughs> we, Buddy Rich did not like Frank at first, and they were both, because they were both arrogant with violent tempers. Frank had a temper like his mom, and Frank persuaded Tommy to include his picture at the bottom of the band's publicity poster. Oh, my God. Buddy, Buddy saw the poster and said, if anyone deserved to be featured, it was me and not some lousy singer with jug ears. And Dorsey didn't budge, <laughs> and Buddy retaliated by speeding up his tempo whenever Frank sang a slow song. And Frank complained to Tommy, and they had fistfights that escalated. Like, they would go at it. One time, Buddy called Frank a name, and Frank grabbed a heavy glass picture filled with water and ice and threw it at Buddy's head. Buddy ducked. If he hadn't, he probably would have been killed or seriously hurt. And the picture hit the wall so hard that pieces of the glass were embedded in the plaster. Buddy Rich was an American jazz drummer and band leader who is considered one of the most influential drummers of all time. Early in his career, he performed in the big bands of Tommy Dorsey, Harry James, Count Basie, and Charlie Parker, and from 1966 until his death led his own big band. Buddy was also known for being a talented studio musician for numerous musical jazz icons, such as Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, and Oscar Peterson. Buddy had a notoriously short temper. Singer Dusty Springfield slapped him after several days of putting up with Rich's insults. The Beastie Boys referenced Buddy's temper in their song, Sabotage. In the early 1980s, Rich's temper was secretly documented in a series of secret recordings made on tour buses and in dressing rooms by the pianist in his band, known as the Bus Tapes. These recordings can now be heard on YouTube. The tapes are a favourite of comedian Jerry Seinfeld, who incorporated three excerpts into three episodes of his TV series, Seinfeld. On April 1st, 1987, the day before his death from a brain tumour, Rich's last request was to hear the tapes of his angry outbursts, which did not happen. Sinatra delivered the eulogy at Rich's funeral. In that time period, I mean, that's how you solved your problems. Like, I mean, today... Yeah, you're right. People just took it outside, just like, hey. got that fist fight out. Like, look, I mean, it was I mean, it was like my grandpa used to say. He goes, he goes I had a little brother, and I used to always tell people he was my older brother because he looked old, and I didn't. I looked good. Oh, see? Grandpa, Wrong. He's just an asshole, but that's okay. He goes, but anytime anybody gave him some shit, I'd always throw the first punch. And right. I, I remember the story... And I just remember telling him, I was like, well, Grandpa, you can't do that these days. People, you know, they'll either call the cops or they'll, they'll right. sue you. And he's right. like, he goes, well, everybody in your generation saw. He goes, we took it outside, we beat the shit out of each other, and then we just called it a day. And then we moved on with our lives. Hmm. You know, coming through the Depression and coming through, like, And that was back that in, stuff. it was dog-eat-dog oh, world back oh, then. absolutely. I mean, it was like, hey, you didn't have it, you had to yeah. go and get it. You know, and it was, you gotta, you gotta kind of keep, you know, going after something and basically just stop at nothing to get there. But it wasn't like, oh, like, I'll stop here and, um, you know. Feel that margarita, Miss Mel. It sounds like you're peeing, right? <laughs> I'm, 
Why don't you stop peeing, Christian? <laughs> oh, sorry. I, th- I thought this was a, uh, you know, like a regular like, podcast. We could do whatever we wanted. Exactly. Right? Well, <laughs> it makes me think about the bloopers for um, Liar, Liar with Jim Carrey. I love that. And when at the end with the blooper and he's pouring the the water in the mm-hmm. <laughs> in the courtroom and then you don't see the picture but you see the water going down the... He goes, oh, like... <laughs> 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 but anyway, <laughs> but you're right. But it I, was back then. Yeah, that I mean, was I, think, different. I think that's just kind of how they dealt with things. But I mean, obviously, there was probably some animosity and some jealousy between the two. And yeah, but uh, it's always funny. It's just that that, that old generation always it was just they're a mess. They didn't was, give a fuck. Was, they're like the honey no, badgers. <laughs> there, was, there was no cattiness. It was just like you got a fucking problem. Let's step that's outside. true. Let's just get this over with. That's true. That was a different era. So Frank didn't. Um, tolerate anybody, even a woman, interfering with his singing. And at one point, he refused to share the microphone with Connie Haynes, who was also in the band. Because she attracted too much attention, she'd look at some guy in uniform when when Frank wouldn't give her the mic, so she'd have her own way where she would sing to the guy instead. And the guys loved it and started hollering and screaming for her, which which made Frank really mad. And between choruses, she'd dance, and Frank would say something like, mean, like, go ahead, do your cornball thing. That's what he said on mic. And he didn't like her because, you know, she said she was down from down south, and he didn't like her, and it, she didn't feel like he thought she was sophisticated, you know, New York. And finally, he told Tommy to fire her. And Tommy fired him instead because he's like, you don't tell me what to do. And for two weeks, you know, he wasn't in the band, and two weeks later, Frank apologized, and Tommy let him back in. But Frank's compulsion for cleanliness showed itself when he traveled with the Dorsey Band, and the musicians took to calling him Lady Macbeth because he was always showering and changing his clothes. So he became a teen heartthrob while in the Tommy Dorsey Band, and Tommy recognized that he had a wonderful singer in Frank, and in Frank, in, in turn, Frank idolized Tommy, making him the godfather of his daughter, Nancy Sandra, who was born on June 7th, 1940. He imitated everything about Tommy Dorsey, you know, uh, the flashiness of his, the way he dressed. He threw temper tantrums the same way that Tommy Dorsey did. He copied his mannerisms. And Tommy was demanding of perfectionists, and so Frank became one, too, at this time. And he spent money as openly as Tommy did, and he started cheating and taking women the same way. I know you love that, right? I saw the look on your face, Megan. (laughs) Um, The band leader also had a, a penchant for toy trains, and so Frank, for a moment there, adopted the same hobby. Um, and, but the one thing he learned from Tommy is when Tommy would play the trumpet, he breathed a certain way because he's like, how does he, how's he able to go back and forth between the trumpet and, you know, the phrasing? And so Tommy told Frank that when he tra- played the trombone, he would sneak short breaths out of the corners of his mouth at certain points in the song, and Frank started using the same technique that helped his phrasing become seamless. You know, and he also Frank was heavily inspired by the phrasing of Bing Crosby, how he phrased things and sounded so clearly. Which you know, being a Frank Sinatra lover, mm-hmm. 
So within the first year of his marriage, uh, he was over being married, and he started sleeping with other women. He talked openly about his marriage problems, and he was very unhappy. And by October, he had met and fell in love with a girl named Alora Gooding, who he lived with when he came to L.A. and Hollywood. And... Uh, they lived together in Hollywood, 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 while Nancy stayed back home in Jersey uh, and took care of his baby daughter. The affair lasted a few years, and Frank tried to leave Nancy because of it, but Dolly put the kibosh on that shit. The OG's back. Yes, she's like, I ain't, uh-uh, now you're not getting no divorce. So he returned home with his picture of... Um, Laura in his wallet, and Nancy found it, and that's when she became. And she's like, he's like, oh, that she's just a fan, a kid who was hanging around the band and wanted me to have her picture. Now, what would you do if you found a picture of a girl in Christian's wallet, Megan? Would you accept that and go, okay, you no. know what? That's good. Cool. That's what she signed up for. She's thinking of it. Like, in 1941, a, Frank, who was 25, but what do you know of freaking 25? You know what I mean? They were both young. Uh, he was named top band vocalist by Billboard, and Tommy used the swooning because girls would come and start swooning. I can't imagine what that's like at 25 to have girls swooning and screaming. He was the original teen idol, he the was, original teen he idol. He was a rock star. He was he the was, beginning of the rock star era. And this is the 40s. Yeah. Ooh, what did I do? Nothing. Did that mean? No, that was my name. That was my big old crunky No, it's fine. No, it was me. Um, he was the teen idol. He was a teen idol. I mean, I mean, growing up, I mean, I mean, I'm sure Megan saw it. I'm sure you saw it. Even those old cartoons, you know, the old Warner Brothers cartoons. Mm-hmm. You know, they they drew him into character. They drew him. Did into, they? I didn't oh, know. Oh, absolutely. Like anything what? of the. Uh, what was the big rooster? The big uh, oh oh the, the big cocky. That's one of my favorite cartoons. Besides yes. Pepe Le Pew, I love Pepe Le Pew, and I love that rooster. It was um yeah, he was the big Sammy. Uh, no, oh. it was um oh shoot. Now I got it. Now I got it. Now I got to look it up. But anyways, but like, the they, rooster, but go they ahead. would have mm-hmm. they'd have those cartoons, and they would draw Frankie into character. And like even at a young age, you're like oh, like Foghorn. It was Foghorn it. something. That's it. Yeah, Foghorn Leghorn. That's what. Foghorn like they drew Frank, Frank Sinatra. Was oh in there? well, there was like certain cartoons where it was like you know he'd be in the hen the hen coop and it would just be. Yeah, I just remember Foghorn Leghorn saying, "I say, I say." Yeah, but something you know like he'd that. be in like the hen cooper or something like that, and like this young little heartthrob would come in and they drew what? Frank Sinatra as this little scraggly little guy with these big blue eyes. Would, I didn't know that. They drew him into a uh, another rooster. And, it, you know, he'd go out there and sing it. So, I mean, like, look, he was, I mean, he was not only just a great rock star, like, right. in the music scene. I mean, he was First just, one. he was a star. Like, this guy was a star. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we'll get into it more about his movie career, mm-hmm. but this guy was just, I mean, he was, like, he was the he was the, the guy. The first, yeah, he, he was, was the, guy. the first. He was the multi-act. He did the singing. He did wow. the acting. He did everything. He mm-hmm. was just something that I think the population of that time or the, the, the era just just gravitated around him just because mm-hmm. of who he was and how. And he was handsome. Oh, he was hand. He was good looking dude. He mm-hmm. was confident. But he, he was short. Swagger. Was he short? Was he like how he was tall like was five he? Five eight. We looked oh, okay. it up the other yeah, day. Oh, he's five eight. Mm-hmm. Wow. The way you think about it, I think of him as being like your height, over six feet. I, I always didn't know. Him as a little kind of guy, but he was always just he just the scrawny guy is what they was, called him. Yeah. But he was, but he, there was no Napoleon complex to this guy. I mean, mm, he was confident. Well, he yeah. knew he was like, I'm the best. Well, we we've already seen that a few times. So Tommy said that when it came to the swooning and teenage girls coming. 
Every time the girls would swoon, Dorsey had his musician, that buddy, buddy was in there too, stop the music and swoon right back at them. And then this inspired the girls to do it better. And then the madness grew until soon the girls were just in a frenzy. And Tommy said he used to stand there like amazed looking at that shit. So by the end of the first year, Frank had replaced Bing Crosby as the top of the pole, his idol. Amazing. Yeah, that had held, Crosby, Crosby had held that spot for six years at the top of some pole. I think it was downbeat. And on January 1942, he had his first recording session. And that evening, Frank, he decided to leave Tommy. He's like, I can do this on my own. I can do this because he was going to be the best. He said, I'm going to be the best singer in the world. I need to leave. So... Also, Manny Sachs, the head of Columbia Records, had already promised him a recording track contract, so Frank gave Tommy one year's notice. Tommy thought he was joking and said, what? That's what he said, like little John, <laughs> Megan. What? So he's like, he's joking, whatever. So six months later, Frank asked him if he wanted him. Frank, so Frank said, do you want me to look for a singer for you, Tommy? And Tommy wouldn't speak to him after that for six months. He was so mad about it. So Tommy knew then that Frank was a golden goose, so right around the time when he was about to leave, he said, look, I'll let you out of your contract. So he made him an offer he couldn't refuse. This is the start of that, ha-ha. Mm -hmm. uh, he said, I'll give you an advance of $17,000 if you sign a contract giving me 33.3% of your gross earnings over $100 a week for the next 10 years. Who signs a contract like that? But anyway, the contract also called for Frank to pay Tommy's manager 10% uh, as a commission for bringing Frank uh, to the attention of Columbia Records. It was ridiculous. And Frank needed the advance because he no longer would have that steady salary, so he had to hire people, and he wanted to buy a new house for Nancy and his baby daughter. Also, Frank was a big old spendthrift, so, so he signed the agreement eagerly, but a year later, he regretted it. He paid Tommy only $1,000 in the contract, and he refused to pay anything further. He complained bitterly to the press about it, and uh, the fans started boycotting Tommy Dorsey's performances, and annoyed at being portrayed badly, Tommy sued him. So MCA, his new agents, which is Lou Wasserman, who mm. people, if they go start looking, you know who Lou Wasserman is. You know the name. He's, you know he's the name. The, yes. Lou Wasserman was over MCA at this time, and he was his agent. They bought Frank out of his contract. However, Tommy said that he was visited by three businessmen, like, who threatened him to sign or else. That sounds kind of like the Godfather, right? Mm -hmm. So Frank stopped speaking to Dorsey for five years, and when Tommy Dorsey died suddenly after choking in his sleep in 1956, his widow never received any type of condolences from Frank Sinatra. That's another thing about Frank. Once he cut you off, you're dead. Mm -hmm. I think they spoke very briefly, and Frank had went back years later to do one more set for the Dorsey Orchestra, but it wasn't the same. And I didn't put it in my notes, but years later, he would talk shit about Tommy. He would talk nice about Henry Harry James, but he'd be like, whatever. Well, you know? I mean, but look at it. I mean, it's like... He didn't like being um, held down. And, you know, sitting next to two ladies that are that work in the legal world, like mm -hmm. you guys all know about the, the power of signing a contract and mm -hmm. stuff like that. But it's like, look, he knew... Tommy Dorsey knew what he was getting Frank mm -hmm. to sign, and, mm -hmm. and he took full advantage of a guy who 
was going to take a leap. He was going to take a risk. And he was true. backed he into was a too, corner. He had yeah, to he it. was too big. He was so, too big for Tommy. You know what I mean? He so, knew he, where he was going. You know, and, you know, did Frank handle it? Well, probably not. I mean, they probably could have had, but we don't know the inner talkings. Or and the, back then, people were loosey-goosier. You know what I oh, mean? absolutely. He probably, Frank was smart because he realized early on, I'm being taken advantage of. I'm not going to keep this shit up. Well, I could have told you he was taking advantage of as soon as I saw the contract. I would have yeah. said, you know what, fine, I'll finish my contract and then see you later. You get nothing. No, he was like, no, I'm going now. Ain't nobody got time for later. I'm going to be big right now. That's, like you said, that swagger started. So, and he knew, he, look, he got out of it because of all his, uh, the star power. He's a teen idol back then. Mm-hmm. So, Sinatra's last performance with Tommy Dorsey was in September 1942. And from then on, he was on his own. So Bill does an extra added attraction uh, and paralyzed by stage fright, 27-year-old Frank walked into the microphone for his first solo show on December 30th, 1942. Immediately, the girls let out a scream, and Biddy Goodman, Biddy Goodman had been on for the first hour, for anybody who knows. So Frank's shrewd publicist at the time, George Evans, helped his debut by hiring some girls, some little bo- with bobby socks on, and paid them $5 to jump and scream. And he said, I said, I want you to say, oh, Frankie, oh, Frankie, especially when he says there's certain things in the soft ballads. He was, like, directing them. And he even drilled them in the basement of the Paramount Theater. He drilled them, and he told them, look, I need you just to fall apart. When he does that, and he said by the end of the first week, the ticket line stretched around the block. Reporters were writing about the you know, new crooner, and uh, the Paramount stayed packed for the full full four weeks of Benny Goodman's engagement, and the theater owner immediately signed him for another four weeks and hired extra guard bodyguards for the crowd control. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That's nuts. So following his immense success, success uh-oh, <laughs> at the Paramount, Frank signed contracts with uh, Columbia Records and RKO Films. Anybody know who was a part of RKO Films? I'll give you another drink of the, uh, what's that called? Oh, the the Basil Hayden's. Yes. If you know who's over RKO Films. You know what? I'll give you a hint. His son ended up becoming president of the United States. Oh, it was Jack Kennedy. Joseph, yeah. Joseph Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was the president. Better known as John Kennedy. Yes. And Joseph was, uh, I think he ended up being becoming a partner of RKO, I think. That's that's a whole nother... Level. Later. Well, that's oh, coming. Later. Oh, that's oh, coming. Oh, that's God, that, God help. Anyway, he made sure the press knew the sums he was making, Frank did, because he told them how much he was making. I'm making 1200 a week. I'm making 1000 for this and that. So all of Frank's time and energy was spent on his career. Nothing got in the way of that ambition. He didn't spend any time with Nancy. He never came home, even though he would promise her, and he left her hanging many nights. So she was like, are you coming home from dinner? Yeah, I'll be there. Never showed up. He drank, look at Megan, he drank and smoked and sometimes did five shows a day. He worked hard. He became so accustomed to the adulation of his young fans that he resented anything else from anyone else around him. If he read a negative review, he threw it on the floor of his dressing room and started ranting at whoever was standing there. And behind Frank's back, his friends started calling, referring to him as a monster and calling George Evans, his publicist, Frankenstein. And they knew better than to speak to Frank in the morning. That's right. Don't talk to him in the morning. Yeah, he's not over. Okay? And it takes him two hours to wind up. 
absolutely. So nobody could talk to him until he was ready. And he wasn't even present for any of the births of his um, kids. So Nancy got pregnant, and he wasn't there for when Frank Jr. was born on January 10th, 1944. But Frank would admit later that that baby was an attempt to save a bad marriage. And the endless tours, because, and it was bad because on Frank's part, he admitted it's probably him. You know, the endless tours and nightclub kept him away, which drove them naturally apart and the cheating and stuff like that. So he went home in March but stayed only a few weeks before returning to Hollywood to start on Anchors Away with Gene Kelly for MGM. And he told Nancy that he wanted to move to Hollywood. And a few weeks later, he bought an estate in the Tupeluca Lake area. Boom. Do you guys know where the house is? We do. We run by it all the time. Wow, really? Mm-hmm. He bought that house sight unseen. Amazing. Yep, well, he, I, well, sight unseen. Well, the funny thing is, is it, and I, I'll tie it into this a little bit, yeah. because of the golf course that is right across there, Lakeside Golf Club. Yes. Was actually one of the founding members was Bing Crosby. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. And Bing Crosby founded, Tupeluca Lake was founded in 1923. Really? The golf club was founded in 1924, and one of the founding members was Bing Crosby. So, what? Tying it into Frank just idolizing Bing Crosby. Yeah. Why not buy it where the guy's living? Right that down makes the sense. And it was. It's a, so Bing Crosby lived there too. Yeah, uh, Bing Crosby lived in the Toluca Lake area. Yes. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I believe yeah. so. I believe so. But yeah. He was definitely a founding member of Lakeside Golf Club, which is still to this day one of Hollywood's. Premier, premier club where a lot. And you of, know because you're a golfer. I am a golfer. How'd you know that? How'd you know about that? Is that why you guys picked the house there? Uh, no, we just <laughs> prices, we just, like huh? the, we just like the neighborhood. To be honest, the neighborhood's yeah. just it's just got that it it has that old school mystique and it just kind of has. It's that, that old school feel. Hollywood old feel. Hollywood. Just, yeah, it, like it's a lot of the houses, too. but it hasn't changed. It mm. hasn't like. It's a nice really area. There's some, there's some certain areas like in that neighborhood where like people have redeveloped and they've kind of thrown. Justin all these. Bieber was renting a house there, and we had all those parties, right? He was. He's, he's back. Had, he's, he's back, back there. And Haley Baldwin have another house. They're back what? on the lake. They're back, They're back on, the on the lake. lake. Back wow. The, lake. the Beebs is back. <laughs> the Beebs is back. You're like, damn it. But we don't have any parties. Like, but there's a lot of still like, not only just Hollywood folk that are there but also sports stars are there because it is who's quite, there it is tell quite, us there's a lot of Dodgers there there's um, I believe I've heard rumors Clayton Kershaw was in the yeah. area and mm-hmm. um, you know there are what's his address Christian no <laughs> yeah. and well, just kidding no, um, no but it, it, it is a quaint neighborhood it does have that feel of just kind of it is still got that old school vibe to it mm-hmm. it's not very much so a up and coming, like it's not trendy. Busy, it's not trendy. Like it still has, like look, Bob's Big Boy's still there. They still have car shows. Oh, that's right, that's right. They still yeah. have those car shows. Yeah, oh, every, every Friday. Friday night. Every Friday what? night. Classic car show every Friday night. Wow. We, I mean, shoot, we walk up there two Fridays a week, uh, two Fridays yeah. a month. Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, so it, it still has that vibe. I'm gonna have like to change that. You have to be vibe. here doing a taping every two Fridays a month. Well, At least one of them. The two Fridays that we're not going to that. Yeah, we're we'll rotate. We'll rotate. Hey. We're in there. We're in there. Hey. No, but it's, uh, I, I think, you know, a lot of people have, they think of Hollywood, and I think it's funny just because Did of you know about Frank Sinatra's, like, how did you know about Frank Sinatra's house I there? Think, I think it was just. It's the lakeside. Yeah, it was just through lakeside. It's just kind of actually growing up around that area, and people are like, oh, yeah, that house was Frank Sinatra's house. Mm. And you'll see it, and I, we ran by it today. We actually took a run, and I try to remember what the name was, but it was actually in French, 
which I think had to do with My Way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is now actually owned by a famous producer who I will not name just because we'll just leave it at Why? that. Why? Who is give, it? I want to give the guy his privacy. I'm not going to... They gonna could probably go online and yeah, look for it. Yeah, you probably can. No, it's okay. I can look it up, too. <sighs> but are you not eating your crust? <laughs> so... No, I didn't want to chew on the mic. So... <laughs> So while you looking up that, look up who who bought Frank Sinatra's house. Um, uh, on the morning of October 12, 1944, 30,000 screaming Bobby Soxers jammed into Times Square, blocking the traffic, stampeding bystanders, crashing into store windows to get to the Paramount Theater to see Frank, who was opening a three-week engagement of five shows a day. The city went on an emergency alert. Hundreds of policemen, two emergency trucks were dispatched to subdue the rioters, and Sinatra's dressing room was packed. And here we go. One of his backstage visitors was Tamby. So Tamby was his former bandmate from the Hoboken Four, who used to get jealous and beat him up, right? And they must have, you know, been cool because Tamby had turned down a job to be Frank's valet the year before. Tamby had moved back to Hoboken. He asked Frank for $5,000 that day uh, in the backstage dressing room to buy a tavern, and he explained that his financing had just fallen through at the last minute, and Frank turned him down cold. Minutes later, while Tamby was still in Frank's dressing room, Buddy Rich stopped by and mentioned that he wanted to start his own band. This was back in 1940. Frank gave him $40,000 there in cash, right there on the spot. After Buddy left, Tamby grabbed Frank and threw him up against the wall like he used to do. And Frank called the cops, and uh, but he changed his mind and told him to let, let Tamby go. And as he was leaving, Tamby told him, Frank, as an entertainer, you're the tops. As a man, you stink. And he walked out. So because of his little punctured eardrum that he was, he was exempt from serving in the military, and back on the West Coast, away from Dolly and his publicist, George Evans, Frank openly cheated so much that it embarrassed Nancy, who turned a blind eye. They did have amazing New Year's Eve parties at their home where she felt most comfortable. And here you go, Megan. Here's another one, good one. So one New Year's... They had infamous New Year's Eve parties over there in Toluca Lake. I mean... It was like people would do, like, you know, um, skits and stuff like that. Bob Hope, everybody. It was the party to go to for New Year's Eve. So one New Year's Eve party didn't go so well for poor Nancy. She was passing around hors d'oeuvres when she noticed a showgirl wearing a ring exactly like the one that Frank had given her. And then she remembered that she had given that ring to Frank weeks before to take to the jeweler to be repaired. And she said, I felt so humiliated. I thought I would kill myself. So that girl had on her ring. He gave it to her. So what would you, what would, how would you feel if you gave, look at Christian. <laughs> I'm going to get up in the table here for a second. She might just kill me out of just. Oh, no, that's terrible. <laughs> you, you give Christian your ring to take to the jeweler to get cleaned. You giving a party and this little beautiful girl is wearing your ring. He doesn't give a fuck. She signed up for it, though. She said, I'll never get in the way of your career. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I feel bad Be for her, Be careful, girl. Be careful what you put she, out there. Yeah. I don't know. But. Yes. 
And then while filming a movie at MGM, right then and there, he tacked a list of actresses that he wanted to get busy with on his dressing room door, and over time he checked off each one. Remember, he's Frank Sinatra. He's a idol. And on 1946, he walked out on Nancy and got an apartment. He's like, I want out. Because he's too young, he realizes, I want to be on my own. I want to do my thing. So he, they reconciled, though, two weeks later. So in January 1947, Joe Fischetti, a mafia, big mafia dude, invited Frank to go to Miami to, for a few days and then fly to Havana to meet the man, Lucky Luciano, the head of the mafia. The chairman of the board. Didn't they call him the chairman of the board or the commission? You should know. You're the official Italian here. Um, we, don't, we don't know anything about the mafia. Don't that's know right. You don't say that word, right? According to the godfather. So in exchange for a few days alone with the boys in Cuba, and I say that with uh, quotes, he promised to meet Nancy in Mexico City on Valentine's Day. So they flew to Cuba, him and the Fischetti brothers, and Frank was photographed partying with Lucky Luciano, gambling in the casino with him, going to the races with him, and eating dinner with him. Frank even posed for a few photographs with him that would come back to haunt him. And on the same trip, he also hung out with other now legendary mobsters like Albert Anastasia, Carlo Gambino, Genovese, Frank Costello, Joe Bonanno, Carlo Marcello. I think Carlo, well, I'll say it in two seconds. Santo Traficante and Meyer Lansky, and everybody brought envelopes of cash. Frank had, I didn't put it in here, but he had a briefcase, like a suitcase of, like, money that he took down there, too. And they gave it to Lucky because they wanted to pay allegiance to him, you know. And a few days after Frank had flown to Mexico City to meet his wife, a newspaper columnist wrote, about him consorting, cavorting with the mob, and it garnered so much publicity that the U.S. immediately cut off all shipments of narcotic drugs to Cuba. The next day, the Cuban police arrested Lucky and sent him back to Italy because he couldn't come back to the United States. He was exiled. And in the national news, Frank was depicted as a friend of the mobsters and unfazed. Frank later visited Lucky Luciano in Naples with his mm. friend Gilly Rizzo, where Frank gave Lucky a solid gold cigarette case inscribed to my dear pal Charlie from his friend Frank Sinatra. Sinatra. I saw a doc, though. I did. I recently saw a documentary that said it was during this time, and I don't know if, I don't think Frank Sinatra was in the room, but it was during this time that the hit, that the decision was made by the Cosa Notra in that room to get rid of Bugsy Siegel, because he died that year. Remember, he started up the Flamingo in Las Vegas, and it didn't do as well, but he put money into it, and they gave him chances and chances, and it was that thing down in uh, Cuba. Those guys made the decision, like, all right, it's time for him to go. And that's, I think, down in Cuba when they made that decision with Lucky to get rid of him. Wow. So... On June 20th, 1948, Frank and Nancy had their third child, Christina, a Father's Day gift. All the while, Frank was busy fantasizing about Ava Gardner, and she hated him at first, but finally she hung out with Frank. Okay, here we go. Y'all ready for this? <laughs> so the night that Ava finally hung out with Frank, his press agent, Jack Keller, gets a call at 3 a.m. Frank says, Jack, we're in trouble. And Jack says, how can we be in trouble when I'm in bed? And he says, look, we ain't got time for jokes here, Jack. 
I'm in jail out here in the desert in India, Cal- Indio, California. And Frank told Jack that he and Ava had just shot up the town. And Jack says, what? <laughs> he basically says, what? Yeah. Like like <laughs> little they got, John. They got liquored up and just decided to hop in the, the, the drop top and just basically what? start shooting at streetlights, right? Yeah, he said, yeah, you know those 238s that I got? Well, I got the, you know, I got permits for those things, and I keep them in the Cadillac now because I might get held up. Traveling with all this jewelry and stuff on me. Well, tonight, me and the kid here, uh, we got a little loaded, see? Uh-huh. And we drove down here to Palm Springs, and we thought we'd have a little fun, and we shut up a few street lights, like what Christian says, and store windows with the 38s, that's all. And Jack is like, oh, my God, did you hit anybody? He's like, well, there was one guy, and we creased him a little bit across the stomach. I didn't know that. But it's nothing. It's just a scratch. And Jack says, oh, my God, have you been booked at the police station? He's like, do the newspapers know anything about it? And Frank says, no, the chief here is a good guy. He knows who I am and all. He ain't doing nothing until you get down here. But you made a, made a better make it quick here, Jack. So Jack hung up, chartered a plane from Burbank, and flew into Indio, California with $30,000 cash. And he paid off everybody, like the police, the storekeepers, including the guy they creased. He was the last one. He he was on the, the um, you know, he was like, eh, should I sue? But then they paid him off. He took it. So... Not crazy. That's a better story for him, anyways. Like, what are you gonna do from that? Uh, as soon as Frank Snapper. Somebody says say, I hey, creased. Just... Yeah, I creased him across the stomach. So he was yeah. like, "Oh my god." Yeah, just skinned him. I like how he calls you. So imagine if you and you and Megan get a call from me going, "Look, guys, we're in trouble," and you're like, "We, you, yeah, <laughs> we in trouble." Well, we're imagine in trouble. if you get a call from me and her riding down in the Cadillac <laughs> down in Palm Springs. Hey, Mel, we just what? shot up the joint. What? Exactly. What the hell is this? First of all, I'd laugh, and I think it'd be brilliant. Cause Megan, you know what she would for you? She would be right there in that convertible. Oh, absolutely. She sure would. So because of Ava, George, his shrewd publicist, they argue constantly because George wanted him to stop it. You know, he wanted you to stop it, and in a tizzy of anger, uh, Frank fired George, his publicist of nine years. And he wasn't able to make amends with George before George died in 1950 of a heart attack, actually defending Frank over this whole Ava Gardner thing. Really? Yeah, he was only 48. And he was arguing with a reporter, and then he went home and he had a heart attack. Oh. But, you know, he had told Frank, you got to let that go. You know what I mean? You're, you're messing up your wife. And he he filled in for, you know, Frank with Nancy and always well, I think like made Frank, her feel better. I think Frank said best himself and I think as we'll get into it a little bit more like Ava was like it was him and the female flesh it was yes they were the same person they had the same wants same desires same stubbornness it was everything that was his soulmate she was his soulmate to the day she died I think it was too much of the same though you think so oh absolutely I think I think they were too much of the same person that it Mm. was just they were too stubborn each way to kind of give because mm-hmm. in any good relationship, yeah, there's a little give and there's a little get. Yeah. And I think there was just too much, like, you. I need this and I'm not going to get it from you, so I'm going to go get it anyways. I mean, you're right. They were two sides of the same coin because she hated him when she first met him. She uh, thought he was a conceited jerk, and she op- was openly hostile towards him. But he was captivated from her 
by her from the start, even looking at her in a magazine. In fact, one of his friends had said that he was in a band, the Tommy Dorsey band, and he saw her on the cover of a magazine. He said, I'm going to marry that girl one day. I mean, she was ravishing. I mean, she was beautiful. Um, and he was so smitten with her that he didn't—this is, this is rich— now, he's still married to Nancy, and he was so smitten with Ava that he's like, look, I don't want you seeing nobody else. And she was like, screw you, and she would taunt him by dating other Italian guys who were kind of wiry like him. Um, and so, you know, she told him, you get a divorce, then we can talk, but don't be telling me what to do. You know what I mean? I'm Ava freaking Gardner. Um, and I think, sadly, without George, this is this goes back to fame. When you don't have that George around, you know, to tell you when you're being foolish, that when George died, there was nobody else to tell him, you're being a fool, well, yeah. and contend with the press to protect him, um, who now criticized his singing. And um, he... He, when she refused for the umpteenth time to give him a divorce, Frank left Nancy and publicly flaunted his relationship with Ava by introducing her to his parents. Because you remember, her and Dolly didn't get along. In fact, I read some that Dolly was like, eh, whatever, she got Hollywood airs anyway. Um, that's what she said about Nancy, and um, she didn't care. He took her to his birthday party, his 34th birthday party, uh, and to all of his singing engagements, which is bad because the press is looking at this shit and making you look like a home wrecker. Yeah. But he was madly in love with Ava, and his mom, you know, didn't have any loyalty, as we know, towards Nancy. And I said she was putting on airs. Which and is she, amazing because he, she kept making him stay with Nancy as much as she hated Nancy. Well, not by this time. She was mad because Nancy came out here to, to Hollywood and to Luca Lake. And she blamed her for not letting her see her, the grandchildren as much. She blamed her, not Frank. It's really his fault, too. But she said, you know, but it became a full-blown, uh, initially before Elizabeth Taylor and Eddie Fisher, before Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, it became a full-blown scandal in 1949. And he was depicted as a jerk for treating his wife so bad. And Ava was called a homewrecker. So Nancy hired a lawyer and locked him out when he started flaunting everything around. But Frank, Frank and Ava's love affair was tumultuous from the start. And in 1950, while he was in New York playing a few dates at the Copacabana. Oh, God. This is... You ready for this? Let's go. All right. So see, even in your notes, Ava's ex-husband, Artie Shaw, he's a popular band leader, invited both of them. So Frank is playing at the Copa for like 12 or 11 nights, whatever it is. Artie lives there. He invites them both to a dinner party. Frank says, I ain't going, nah, because he was insanely jealous of her. And he told her, your ass ain't going either. But she's like, no, I'm going to go, because I want to go. So she went, because she had already been talking about Frank to Artie, and it's like, oh, my God, he's so jealous. He's a mess, you know, whatever. And they fought bitterly. Ava and Frank fought bitterly. And by the way, um, so she goes to the party. We know that. An hour into the party, she she gets a phone call from Frank at the apartment. And he says, look, I just called to say goodbye. And she says, where are you going and why can't I come? And he says, not where I'm going, baby. And then she hears a gunshot. And then she hears a pause. And then she hears another gunshot again. So she... Hangs up, runs screaming from the apartment, going, oh, my God, thinking that he killed himself. And she runs with Artie and everybody over to where they're staying. It's called the Hampton House. 
and she dropped the phone. She was screaming. She was in a panic, of course. So meanwhile, David Oselznik, who was a big-time producer, he produced uh, Gone with the Wind, right, mm -hmm. was on the same floor as Frank at this place called the Hampton House. And he heard the gunshots, and he called the front desk and went, I think the son of a bitch shot himself. And the front desk was like, oh, my Lord. They called the cops. And then another guy, Manny Sachs, you know, the head of his Columbia Records, right, the head of his record company, was on, also on the same floor. He had a permanent suite there. He ran out, and he ran into Frank's suite with Selznick and saw that Frank had simply shot his pistol into the mattress twice. So knowing that the police would be there, they grabbed the mattress with the two holes in it, carried it to Manny's suite, exchanged that mattress for Manny's mattress, and brought it back to Frank's bed. And by the time the police arrived to search his suite, there was no trace of the bullets or the bullet holes. So Ava, Ava got there in a panic, like, what the hell? She recounted her story to the police, and Frank was just sitting up in bed smiling, saying, what? She's crazy. I don't know what she's talking about. Holy shit. Well, I mean, it's like... Can you imagine? That, a, a mattress is heavy. I mean, oh, look. I, you I can, can, I, you I carry mean, I a mattress. My, I'm closing my eyes, and I can see these two, these two Dude, models just... Dude, carrying like, a mattress. You know how heavy freaking mattresses are? Yeah, I mean, look, they're just... I mean, obviously, these guys didn't carry it. They had somebody else carry it, and they had it all done, but... No, I, they did it. Manny and David O'Sullivan carried geez. it to Manny's suite, exchanged it because they knew that they were going to looking for those bullets. Amazing. And Frank is like, she's well, dreaming. She's but crazy. Here's, but here's the thing: is Frank is probably probably pissed off that she went there and looked. He was. Like, he was being dramatic. He was being melodramatic. It's like get over it, dude. Like, hey, you didn't want to go. I didn't want to go. If Megan wanted to go. Go. No, he said to Megan, no. "You ain't going either. If I don't she go, you like ain't going." That. No, she didn't. You said they were two sides of the same coin. You don't tell her what to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like, oh, you're going to yeah. go. You're nah, going to go. That means I'm going to go. Right. Now that you said don't go, now I'm going to go. Mm. So on April 27, 1950, a month later, MGM and Lou Wasserman and MCA jointly released him. His money dried up. He had occasional club dates. This is when his record royalties dwindled from Columbia well, as well. Well, it's because the, the whole MGM thing came was because he, he was making wise wisecracks about, uh, was it Louis Mayer? Louis B. Mayer, one of the original founders. Sure did make, he, yes. He was just making jokes. He probably had a few, you know, Talking shit is more like. He probably had a few pops and was just saying, <laughs> exactly. you know, making fun of this old man, and the old man said, hey, I don't give a shit if you, you know, you're Jesus Christ yourself. You don't talk about me, boo-boo. Talk about me. I'm making, my I'm, shit. I'm feeding your shit. I'm Louis B. Mayer. Dried him up. Yep. Dried him up. And you know what? By this time, because of the bad publicity, too, with Ava, he looks like she's a homewrecker. It's like people were sour on that stuff, you know? It's, yeah. People are sour on that even today, if you think about it, you know? So... Thanks to those mob photographs, he barely escaped congressional scrutiny, and they did manage to interview him secretly somewhere. I, I had it here, but I can't see what I did with it. But anyway, the case against him and those mob connections was far from over because eventually it would be 
over his life, five grand jury subpoenas would follow, two Internal Revenue Service investigations, a congressional summons, a subpoena from the New Jersey State Crime Commission, which we'll talk about later, that he would fight all the way to the Supreme Court and lose. So th this mob, those photographs would follow him, and he gave him good reason, of course, as we know. So in August 1951, while still pushing Nancy hard for a divorce, Frank and Ava left for an Acapulco vacation, and the press assumed that he was going out to get a quickie Mexican divorce and marry Ava, so they turned down in full force to cover the story, and the press attention was so intense that they cut their trip short and quickly returned back to California. Okay, here we go. So driving from the airport, when they got back to, you know, wherever it was, LAX, Burbank Airport, whatever it was, they got off the plane, Frank jumped in the car with Ava, and he grazed the leg of a reporter, and he screamed, ah, next time I'll kill you. Next time I'm going to kill you. And then he ran into a photographer who went up over the fender and rolled off the car into his stomach, and it was a hit and run. And the guy was like, they were like, are you going to sue? And he's like, you know what? I want a letter of apology. I want that. And later that month, over the Labor Day weekend, which was August 31st, 1951, uh, and he got the letter of apology, by the way. But later that month, on August 31st, 1951, Ava and Frank got into this terrible fight in Lake Tahoe, Nevada. Ava came back to L.A. because she's like, screw you, I'm going back to Hollywood. And he became despondent and depressed, and he returned to his chalet at the Cal Nevada Lodge and took an overdose of sleeping pills. His valet, George Jacobs, and remember that name, found him in a stupor. George called uh, Santa Cola, who's his friend, Hank Santa Cola, who summoned a doctor to pump Frank's stomach because he was so despondent over, over uh, Ava. <laughs> So Frank and Nancy's divorce, she, she finally agreed to a divorce, and it became final on October 29th, 1951, and he arrived, uh, he married, sorry, he didn't arrive, he married Ava in Philadelphia on November 7th, 1951. I want to say something, by the way. My uncle's birthday, oh no, it's not October, it's October 27th, sorry. But anyway, but my Uncle Freddie is November 7th. That's his birthday. November 7th. It wasn't 19. It might have been 1951. But anyway, Frank was 36 and Ava was 29. And it almost didn't happen because they had another fight a few days beforehand before they got married. But See, this shit is just, I mean, it, I'm telling you, man, from the, the, the get-go, these two just... They weren't, do you... I'm okay. telling you what, these, these two okay. fought more, and they probably had more sex than anybody else, because they would Yeah, they, she, she said that the I'm sex life you. was not the problem. I'm sure it wasn't. It wasn't. It was very good. What do you think about the whole thing, Megan, like, the toxicity of it all? I just, I don't know what I think about it. I think it happens... And they just ended up getting married when they should Doesn't have. it sound exhausting? It is exhausting. But to be 29, but even at 29, it sounded exhausting for me. He was I'm 36. I'm exhausted hearing about it. Well, <laughs> I know, right? I mean, that was, that was the thing. It was just like... It he was couldn't just... get her. He loved her way more than she loved him, but... And by the way, they would be forever friends. After it's all said and done, they would... St he would still call Ava up, but... I mean, this is exhausting, just this whole nonsense. I mean, the two of them, it's just, it's like we just, we keep saying it, it's just, they were the two the same people. It was mm -hmm. just, 
I mean, it, there's the, the certain point. It's just like you can't argue with yourself and never win. It's That's just, true. You can't. You just It's impossible <laughs> because you know that you're not going to allow that you to happen. You can't argue with yourself and never win. But I think also I read somewhere that she felt so because of her beauty and because she knew she was ravishing. I don't know why she married Mika Rooney, but they weren't. Um, but I said Mika Rooney. Like macaroni. Let's <laughs> have another cocktail. <laughs> I am. But um, she, men took her as being unattainable. Like men, it was something about her that felt so unattainable, which made men want her more. For sure. Like that's why she was married multiple times. Um, but that was the thing about her. She felt unattainable. And she just didn't take any mess because she was like, I'm me. I'm Ava. So at this point, his career was down the drain. Like, he couldn't... He, Columbia refused to renew his contract. He played, to, he played to empty theaters. Like, you remember the Paramount Theater, how we talked about 30,000? Megan, he couldn't even, like, fill that theater. He couldn't even fill the balcony. That's so sad. His fan clubs disbanded. And due to his alimony payments to Nancy and making very little money, he became financially dependent on Ava. Um, whose career was soaring. Yeah. You know, her salary from MGM paid most of their bills. She planted her hands and feet in wet cement, cement at Guam's Chinese Theater at this time. Frank wouldn't receive that honor for another 13 years after that. But, you know, MGM offered her a new 10-year contract for 12 pictures, you know, $100,000 per picture, which is a lot of money nowadays. Frank tagged along when the studio sent her to Africa to make Magumbo with Clark Gable. And Frank, who had nothing else to do, went along and carried her back like a faithful courtier. So I guess that's going to be the wrap-up of the first episode. And coming back, we got more going with Ava and Frank, and we're going to see what happens in their lovely relationship. <laughs> oh, God, just light a match now. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. All right, we'll be back soon, Rockabye fans. Rockabye fans.